This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about aspirational communication. It's a little bit of a departure for us. We have as our guest an expert in the field of aspirational communication, my old friend Doug Hathaway. He is a longtime political strategist. He's been a top strategist with Al Gore, with Hillary Clinton, and he's, uh, in fact, he just gave a pitch on aspirational communication to the House Democrats at their recent retreat because they're interested in different ways to communicate in this area, to cut through the clutter and to go up against President Trump, who has a very different way of communicating. We're getting aspirational next on It's All Political. Doug Hathaway, my friend. Welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis. Honored to be here. It's, it's been so long in the making. <laughs> it has been. And we should say that uh, as a uh, point of uh, uh, full disclosure, we are friends for many years. Uh, you knew me back when I had hair. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that was back in college, as yes, I recall. It was, it was the last time I remember you had hair. Yes, thank you very much. All right. Um, so you are an expert on aspirational communications. You recently presented to the House Democrats. Mm -hmm. Speaker Pelosi remained awake through the entire time. She seemed <laughs> engaged. Uh, and uh, But I don't ex – explain to us what aspirational communication is. It sounds like something I read about in Oprah magazine. And what does it have to do with the bloodthirsty, backstabbing, duplicitous world of politics? Um, good question because it is a bit of a buzzword in certain circles. To give it a little background, I have a company that works with mission-driven, purpose-driven organizations of all kinds. So you're trying to achieve something meaningful that benefits people on the planet will work with you. And that could be a company, a nonprofit organization, a social movement, or a candidate for public office. And we draw from the social sciences to inform communication. Uh, cognitive psychology, how the brain works, social psychology, how people think about each other and communicate in groups, things mm -hmm. like that. And one thing I've taken away from doing that for about a decade and a half is the insight that uh, our aspirations are one of the most powerful things that motivate our decision-making and behavior. And your aspirations are your ideas about what kind of person do you want to be, what kind of life do you want to live, and in the context of politics, like what kind of community and country do you want to live in? And aspirational communication is communicating about a company or a good cause or a candidacy in ways that reflect the aspirations of your audience. Because if you can do that, you're, you're connecting with them in a, a meaningful way that packs maximum motivating power. And I should also add that you are you're coming at this from your longtime background in the political world at the top levels. You've been a top aide to uh, Hillary Clinton and Al Gore and, and, and the, in the in the dogfight that is a campaign. So you know this yep. isn't just woo-woo stuff. You know how this can be used practically. Um, so what did you what did you talk to about the House Democrats? What how did you what did you talk to them? And what was well, what questions did they have? 
This was at their issues retreat um, where they leave Capitol Hill and spend three days or so like talking about issues. And I told them a story that a lot of people are familiar with, but is a great example of aspirational communication and practice. And the issue in question was marriage equality. And that fight that was a decade long, I was worked on that issue for a decade from day one in Massachusetts, the first state that allowed same-sex couples to marry mm -hmm. through the Supreme Court decision that made it the law of the land. When we started nationally in Gallup polling, 27% of Americans supported that, uh, our side of that, allowing same-sex couples mm -hmm. to marry. 30 states voted on that issue and the movement lost every one of those ballot measures. Right. Fast forward to today, 67% of Americans support that. And we broke 60% support in 2015 and we haven't, uh, hasn't gone below that since. And the key to that was changing the way we talked about the issue and presented it to people. Mm -hmm. We didn't ask like a pollster typically does. So gay marriage, one side says this, one side says that, who do you agree with? Instead, we ask people, so marriage, what's your aspiration? That's a technique. Take the topic, understand your audience's aspiration. What are their hopes in connection to that? And frame the issue, talk about it that way. And when you ask most people in America, what is their aspiration for marriage? What do you think they would say? Uh, love and commitment. Right. Lifelong, a lifelong commitment, preferably with somebody you love. Absolutely. Yes. And that that is what the gay and lesbian couples who were striving to get married, them too, that was their aspiration. Yeah. So right there, you had the aspiration of the voter and the aspiration of the community who was being denied this right yeah. were the same. Yeah. And that started a whole new conversation. And because previously that issue was discussed as one in terms of rights. It's our civil right to be married. And, and that, you know, will only take you so far. You get, what do you get? Constitutional lawyers will support you, but who? But right. that wasn't connecting with real people who could identify yeah. with like love and marriage and commitment and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, so yes, that rights frame is absolutely factual, right? What the information people needed to know was that this was about the government giving people marriage licenses, not about forcing churches or synagogues or mosques to marry people. So that was an important piece of information, but that was about all they needed to know there. Mm -hmm. Most people don't think about marriage in terms of rights and benefits. And that message of, about rights and benefits actually shot us in the foot because some people, a lot of people thought, oh, they're just trying to get benefits. So I want to run a few things by you here. Um, one of them, and I'm going to start with uh, something that Ezra Klein posted the other day on Twitter. And he had, it was a sort of, it was a stat that said he, he counted the number of times that the candidates, our presidential candidates, use the word hope in their launch speeches. Um, it's a big zero for most of them, <laughs> except for uh, Pete Buttigieg, yep. uh, the uh, mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana. He had nine mentions. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand had three. Beto O'Rourke had one. Booker, Warren, Harris, Bernie, no. Bupkis. He also looked at how many times these can the candidates used the word fight in their announcement speech. Elizabeth Warren, 25 times <laughs> she used the word fight. Our very own Senator Kamala Harris, 23, Gillibrand, 21, Booker, 9, Beto, 2, Buttigieg, 0. Hmm. What does that mean to you on the face? And then we're going to listen to some of the stuff. But yeah. what, what did that mean to you? It's interesting because if you think back to a very aspirational candidate named Barack Obama, hope was yes. like the one word yes. that dominated the campaign. Um, that's called a word frequency analysis. Our linguists would call that on my team. Um, and you can get some insights from words like that, but you have to look at context for it to mean much. 
at the surface, it could suggest that Mayor Pete, I'll call him, yes. not trying to hazard pronouncing his oh, last name. Oh, and I had to look in the mirror for a week <laughs> to try and practice that one. Um, that, yes, he might be talking about aspirational things more. Um, but I have listened to a number of those speeches. And in fact, I think there's more to it than just the message because a candidate embodies, can embody an aspirational ideas before they even open their mouths. Well, let's listen to some of those speeches for some context. And we're going to play clips. These are from the launch speeches of uh, four candidates. And uh, some people group the, uh, you know, based on our, our little stats there, uh, on uh, in two groups, the lovers and the fighters. And we're going to start with a lover, and that's Mayor Pete. Libby, let's, let's hear a little Mayor Pete. So if America today feels like a conf confusing place to live, it's because we're on one of those blank pages in between chapters. Change is coming, ready or not. The question of our time is whether families and workers will be defeated by the changes beneath us, or whether we will master them and make them work toward a better everyday life for us all. And a moment like that calls for hopeful and audacious voices from communities like ours. And yes, it calls for a new generation of leadership in this country. The principles that will guide my campaign for president are simple enough to fit on a bumper sticker. Freedom, security, and democracy. Okay. The, the, the bumper sticker there, hopeful and audacious. What did you, what was Mayor Pete saying to us and how was he saying it? Um, I would call that uh, an aspirational style of communication. In fact, the content he's talking about making the future better. It's a blank page and we're going to make it what we want it to be, that's exactly in the zone. Is it the communal aspect of that? Uh, yeah, the fact that we're going to create something that we're forward-looking, which is a great contrast to Trump, who's, whose slogan is intentionally backward-looking, right? We're going to make America great again is looking at the past. Right. He's looking at the future, which I think all of our candidates are. Um, one thing about him, I think some of these other candidates' message aside he is he represents the aspirations of a lot of people. He's the mayor of a town that came back from um, economic decimation, right? And he told that story in his in his announcement speech. And that story itself reflects the aspirations of people, particularly a lot of people in the industrial Midwest who feel their communities have left been left behind. So the story of of his town and the story of his family are, represents the aspirations of a lot of people. That's the thing. When people are listening to these candidates and when we listen to any candidate, we're always reflecting on ourselves. Mm. Does this person get me? Does this person get my situation? How does their story reflect on mine? That's, mm. that's what's going on in people's heads. Now let's go to uh, California's junior senator, Kamala Harris. And uh, I watched this speech in Oakland along with uh, 22,000 of uh, Kamala's best friends in, in, uh, right in front of City Hall in Oakland. And there's no doubt about it, she is a fighter. Libby, let's listen to Kamala Harris. And together, we took on these battles. And to be sure, we've won and we've lost. But we have never stopped fighting. 
we have never stopped fighting. And that's why we are here today. And that's why we are here today. We are here knowing we are at an inflection point in the history of our world. We are at an inflection point in the history of our nation. We are here because the American dream and our American democracy are under attack and on the line like never before. And we are here at this moment in time because we must answer a fundamental question. Who are we? Who are we as Americans? So let's answer that question to the world and each other right here and right now. America, we are better than this. Different style. Yep. Uh, what did you What did you take from that? Um, fighting language, absolutely, but interestingly, not like a belligerent tone. And tone is super important in politics. And as many of us are painfully aware, who've worked with women candidates, that women are often held to double standards on things like that. Um, Explain how that would work. Like uh, Hillary was was dinged for that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. She. Um, uh, having worked with her closely and knowing her personally, yeah. super smart, competent, and warm person. But that the warmth and empathy, if you will, didn't come through in her style of communication. She was also subject to so many years of like vitriolic attacks and false stories and stuff like that. It was the people who would see her in a small room had a much different reaction than people who saw her on stage in a rally or something. Yeah. So Senator Harris, I see, again, as an aspirational candidate, back to her story, representing the story of many, many Americans. Her, She's the daughter of immigrants to this country who um, was taught you know, to contribute to her community and is given dedicated to public service. She represents to many people, yeah, this is what my life could be like. This is what it can be like in America. No matter who you are, where your family comes from, you can achieve something. And yeah, we Americans are people who contribute, right? Those are aspirational ideas that reflect the values of a lot of people. So just Again, I'm starting with what do they represent as people and their mm. stories represent and then their message and the language they're using um, and their tone. That all matters when we look at a candidate. There's interesting science behind what people look for in candidates, by the way, if you're – Yeah, bring it. Um, there's the social science on what people look for in leaders and including people run for president essentially two things, a combination of strength and warmth, which you can break down into um, – uh, what we'd call attributes, personal attributes. On the strength side, competence, like you know what you're doing or at least sound like you do. And leadership, like you're decisive, you have vision, things like that. And on the warmth side is empathy, like do you get me? Do you understand me? Do you have my best interests in mind? And um, integrity, right? Can I trust you? Mm. We judge everybody that way because as we meet new people, as we go through our day, we're making instant judgments. Is this person friend or foe? Can I trust them, right? Are they able to do me ill or harm? It's literally part of our survival toolkit. So you can look – this is literally how people judge candidates. They judge them as people first. 
And communication style has a lot to do with that and how you show up before your mouth ever even opens. And then I think the other thing going on in the country based on a lot of research conversations about what it means to be a Democrat and what it means to be an American is that the I think the big opportunity for these candidates is to find that position where they are standing up confidently for values like both of these candidates are in a tone that is welcoming to people who are looking for a uniter. So you have to be a, a uniter, but at the same time, you have to be uh, combative at, at some level, right? I mean, where, yeah. how, how, how do you walk that line? Because the, they're going to be going up against someone who is, you know, just rips people for, you know, for sport. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and that's, that's this whole, you know, we saw that uh, three years ago. And so what is, how do they walk that line? Um, I think the first thing is by not waking up every morning thinking about how you're going to position against Donald Trump, but waking up every morning thinking about how you're going to connect with the as genuine aspirations and concerns of the people who you need to inspire and mobilize for your campaign, mm. thing one. So when your head is there, not trying to play to the press or importantly to the partisans, by which I mean the people who are the most active in party politics, who write the checks, who s respond to your tweets, right? That's the, the crowd that loves the, the red meat, if you will. Yes. God love them, but that's like less than 10% of the population. Absolutely. And you yeah. got to think bigger than that. And so your, your ideas and your language can, can connect with the partisan people. And as we've talked about before, 90% of voting behavior is already predictable based on partisan identification. So in terms of persuasiveness, you're, you're, you're looking at 10% of the population or mm. so. And you have to think of them um, very differently from the people who are ardent, you know, partisans for whichever side you're on. And what, what, I don't know if this is a stylistic question or if this goes to aspirational, but when she asked the question, who are we? Who are we as Americans? Is that um, – how does that fit into what you're doing or is that just a stylistic uh, tick on the on the no, speech. That's a great question for her yeah. to ask yeah. because it says we're going to answer that question in a way that's different from the way uh, Trump and the Republicans define it, which mm -hmm. is in exclusive terms. You are American if you fit a certain criteria, primarily, you know, white Christian Republican, right? Um, and I've seen uh, there's interesting research on this asking Americans what is most important in terms of how you define an American. Is it race and ethnicity, religion, or is it belief in ideas like um, inclusiveness mm. um, and freedom for everybody, et cetera? And I wasn't surprised to see that most Americans say, oh, it's more important what you believe than what you look like. And her saying, let's answer this question, um, gives her the opportunity to create an aspirational right, values-based uh, set of beliefs that people can rally around despite differences in culture and ethnicity. Let us now go to the other coast, the East Coast, to New, York, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. He's all about the love. Libby, bring the love. We're here today to seek justice. We're here today because we are impatient for that justice. And our sense of moral urgency, our impatience, comes from the most demanding of all values. It comes from love. 
love of our families, love of our communities, love of our country, and love of each other. You know, the mayor was right, Newark, Brick City, this community. This community taught me all about that love. It's not that feel-good, easy-going love. It is strong, courageous love. It is defiant love, the kind of love that works through heartbreak and pain and betrayal. It's the kind of love that keeps on going and never gives up. It's the kind of love that sacrifices, the kind of love that is essential. Damn, I, I want to crank the Al Green right now. It's like, uh, oh, the love, love and happiness. I've never heard that much love in a campaign speech before. No, is it, that, it's what's unusual. up with that? It sounds like a civil rights leader or a preacher, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, we talked earlier about love and commitment as the way to talk about marriage. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most basic human emotions and aspirations is to be love and to belong and that sort of thing. So it's, it's powerful stuff, actually. It's very unusual to hear in politics. It's an interesting question. Like, is it risky to be the guy talking about something that sounds soft and emotional when you're running to be the leader? Well, right? especially uh, the, the soft and emotional when you're, when you're going up against the guy who is the quintessential opposite of that. Will he – will some voters, potentially those 10 percent of voters, will they look at this like, wow, this guy's a little squishy compared to, compared to Trump? Uh, interesting question because the – I think my take is – Um, not making any predictions about how this goes for Senator Booker, that the way to counter Trump is not to be a liberal version of Trump, right? Um, You fight fire with water, as it were, right? And and I think looking philosophically at it, emotionally at it, where you're getting the emotional dynamics on the Republican side are anger and fear. Mm -hmm. Now, that's being mirrored on the Democratic side, too. And that is one of the dynamics in our politics, which is concerning to people who actually study political polarization in societies around the world. A lot of them are concerned about American ways they haven't been before because they're seeing that what's happening is the more partisan people on either side are starting to distrust each other's motives and think that the other side is wishing them ill, right, as opposed to the vast middle ground of people who are kind of exhausted by all that and looking for a breath of fresh air. That's what your some of your research has found is that it's it's that most people want that. They want that everyone to get along. People are yearning for unity in the country and they're looking for leaders. I, I do believe this. The bigger opportunity um, – and it's, it is an interesting question about how do you do that. But mm-hmm. the bigger opportunity with this exhausted majority of Americans – is to be the kind of leader who has clear principles and everybody understands them and you stand firmly on them and you know how to work with other people who have different ideas or disagree. Now, when you're up against a bully like Trump and the kind of bullying that you're seeing coming from him and other politicians like him, yeah, you have to be strong in the face of that, obviously. But you hear Senator Booker talking about how And this is true for those – if you read the stories and the personal recounts of the civil rights movement and what did it take for um, people, young people, families, Rosa Parks, Mm -hmm. right, to step up in the face of literally violence, right? That takes a lot of courage and they get a lot of courage from this sort of um, language that they hear heard in church, Mm -hmm. right? That's a very powerful thing. All right, let's uh, finally let's cue up the fighter of fighters. 
Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. This is her delivering her speech in front of a factory in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where uh, workers, uh, I think more than a century ago, yep. fought and, uh, and won various rights. And uh, let's go to Senator Warren. The story of Lawrence is a story about how real change happens in America. It is a story about power, our power, when we fight together. Today, millions and millions and millions of American families are also struggling to survive in a system that's been rigged, rigged by the wealthy and the well-connected. Hardworking people are up against a small group that holds far too much power, not just in our economy, but also in our democracy. Like the women of Lawrence, we are here to say enough is enough. We are here to take on a fight that will shape our lives, our children's lives, and our grandchildren's lives just as surely as the fight that began in these streets more than a century ago. Because the man in the White House is not the cause of what is broken. He is just the latest and most extreme symptom of what's gone wrong in America, a product of a rigged system that props up the rich and powerful and kicks dirt on everyone else. So once he's gone, we can't pretend that none of this ever happened. It won't be enough just to undo the terrible acts of this administration. We can't afford just to tinker around the edges, a tax credit here, a regulation there. Our fight is for big structural change. All right, Elizabeth Warren with three of the 25 fights that we saw heard there. What, yeah. what is she telling us and how is she telling us? Is that, is that aspirational? Parts of it were actually telling the story of the women who came together and started workers' um, uh, walkouts, that uh, protesting wage cuts, so forth, is aspirational. It's telling a story to people you have the power to make a difference. And in fact, some research done by uh, some folks here in California with young people uh, for next-gen climate. Mm -hmm. Tom, Tom Steyer's organization. Um, yeah, yes. they they looked at how do we mobilize uh, young people, many of whom are sort of cynical that you know my vote doesn't matter that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what they found was tell them stories like that, give examples of how we have power in numbers and we can do this, and that did uh, motivate young people to vote. So on that level, yes, and she's telling a story about others, not about herself. Um, tone wise, it's the us against it's an us against them narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of people are going to agree with what she's saying. Absolutely. People think there's too much concentration of wealth and power and um, that the system isn't working for everybody the way it's supposed to be. Um, and I think uh, one of the best messages for any Democrat is that the mission of the party, the mis mission of my candidacy is to make this government, this economy work for every one of us, not just the powerful and privileged. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then my question with uh, her candidacy is, is the kind of tone, like, is it welcoming to that vast number of people? Again, when we have a nominee on either side, people are going to line up, right? And who are you getting sure. at the margin and who are you, who are you mobilizing around it? Um, and it's, there's no silver bullets here. There's not one right way to do it. Um, but all of these people had aspirational aspects to what they were saying and who they represented, the stories they told about their town or about uh, women who made change happen. That's all good, small, powerful stuff. Is there, do you expect any of these candidates to change their tone? Their, these, there's these aspirational qualities of their, of their stump speeches uh, when the general election hits um, or do you expect them – or do you – can you still be aspirational in that, you know, three-month uh, – five-month sprint towards the end of the uh, – towards the towards election? Yeah, totally. I think um, particularly by then, hopefully you have grounded yourself in a clear vision and set of principles and what it's all about and not making jarring shifts at the end. Um, I think the, the really interesting and complicated question is God knows how many candidates we're going to have to choose from in the primary. 19 and counting. Wow. Yes. And, well, counting Biden. And how are people going to – how are candidates going to break through and what are they going to resort to to try to break through? I think the primary could actually mess up a lot of people, get them off their game, get them trying things to please the donor who's yelling in their ear that they have to be more fire and brimstone or whatever it is, you know, or to break through in these debates, right? These debates are going to be like... With 20... Okay, so there'll be 10 at each, 10 likely. At each, yeah. um, can you be aspirational in, your, in the 90 seconds you have to answer a question? And yep. you might have a total of what, three, four minutes of total of airtime all night. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge for voters <laughs> as well yeah. as candidates. Remember, a lot of what's going on there is people just sizing them up, mm -hmm. making pretty quick judgments, you know, mm -hmm. particularly when you have 10 people. Um, you have to come across uh, in attractive ways, obviously. I think you're going to see some who are going to try to really quickly explain all their policies to you, mm -hmm. which is a very democratic thing to do. Yes. And then the laundry list. Right. Then you'll see others, um, like we've heard here, some of them, who are going to explain some principles, which is one of the things I talked to the House Democrats about at their <clears throat> retreat. Start with your principles. It's much more important for people to hear those guiding principles, yeah. not the details of your policies. That's what uh, – when uh, Mayor Pete sat in the very chair you're sitting in, I asked him, I was like, you, you really don't say much about what you're going to do. You speak in sort of broad perspectives. Your, your website is empty. And he goes, well, that's that's intentional. I, I he said exactly what you just did. He, he said, I want to speak about principles first, and then we'll we'll get down to the policy. But I don't know. I, I always feel kind of dubious about that. I said, I want to hear what you want to do. But am I am I kind of an outlier nerd on that way? Um, yes. The uh, <laughs> you would have said that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You're an outlier nerd in many ways. Um, no, the uh, most people like. This is – Chuck Schumer asked me, the Senator Schumer, Senate Majority Leader – well, yeah. at the time, it's Senate Majority Leader. Yes. And talking to senators said, Doug, why did we lose the health care – You're being aspirational there. Right. <laughs> How did, why did we lose the health care debate? Um, you know, they pa passed the uh, Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. um, but felt like in the public debate they came out as losers. And they were trying to explain how this massive thing worked versus the principles behind it. Mm. Um, and the big principle, which I think they missed the mark on, was 
the idea that made it that was universal, the benefit everybody got out of it was that it uh, guaranteed that you were going to be taken care of if you mm. got sick or injured. That's the benefit of health insurance, which is a bigger idea than it's affordable, for example, the more aspirational idea of having security then, oh, yeah, it's cheaper than what I have now is a transactional thing. Mm. And that's the big thing, I think. A lot of Democrats, uh, Democratic politicians and political operatives have a transactional mindset and they try to sell you a policy like a product. Buy my health plan, it's better than their health plan, right? Versus the principle, why do you believe everybody in this country should have health care? That gives the voter a better clue into the, what kind of person, what kind of leader you would be. It sounds like they, they're getting that more. This certainly in the House races last year, where they were, um, they they were definitely talking more about um, health care as um, in those sort of general, but more human terms, as opposed to the transactional way. Right, and that's that's more powerful. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, since I have you here on the day that the Mueller report uh, came out. Um, how should Democrats on the on the, both the the 2020 candidates, uh, the presidential candidates, and, and even your local House candidates and Senate candidates, how should they talk about this, if at all? Um, hard to avoid it if they have to talk to reporters. Right, right. Uh, but the, I mean, should it be? As opposed, you know, aside from answering a question about it, I mean, do they? Is this something they should they should incorporate into their sum speech? Do they do they make this a theme of the? Can you run on this? Because there's really there's no smoking gun. Yeah. There's no indictable crime. There's a right. lot of things that he did that are dubious in many ways, but there's no crime. Yeah, and you have a lot of um, folks who are rightfully angry and upset about Trump, et cetera, et cetera, who are going to want you to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So on one hand, it depends on your electorate and the people you need to motivate and mobilize for your campaign. In general, I wouldn't make it – again, it's – your campaign should be about your voters and your constituents and what are on – what are their aspirations and concerns. In terms of that one, always start with the principle first. The principle is – no one in this country is above the law, including the president. Mm. That's about the size of it. And that I do hear Democrats saying that I think that's a s- smart place to be and let the um, criminal justice system sort out what's gone on here. Mm-hmm. But with the guiding principle that justice will be served, laws have been broken, people will be held accountable for it, no matter who they are. All right. Doug Hadaway, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Doug Hadaway for being my guest on the podcast today. I would not like to thank him for keeping me up uh, too late the night before we'd recorded this. uh, And I had to read the 448-page Mueller report, and you got to sleep in. I'd like to thank the wonderful Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're a lover or a fighter, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.